Good morning. Our scripture focus is Daniel chapter 2. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, People of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, you are to fall face down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshiped the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? Now if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, and harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If God, the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary, and he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. 
He exclaimed, look, I see four men, not tied, walking around in the fire, unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of the blazing fire and called out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the most high God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around them, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed, their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. For there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Elisa, for sharing that passage with us. Uh, my name is Jake. I am a minister and elder here at the Hollows. Uh, yeah, so we'll spend the next 40 minutes talking about zithers and drums. No, not really. But <laughs> Daniel really liked repeating those, those things in the passage. Um, but yeah, we're continuing our sermon series on the book of Daniel, God of the Exile. Uh, it, it showcases Daniel and his friends and how they are faithful witnesses in the, midst, in the midst of a foreign land that was hostile to their faith. But most importantly, it reveals how, how God, he is in control and he is victorious no matter what is going on around us. So I'll pray for us and then we can dive in and look, take a deeper look at this text. Uh, Father God, we, uh, we thank you for this morning that we can gather together to, to sing your praise, to, to pray together, to, to listen to your word together. I pray that you be with us now as we, as we dive into the details of this passage. May we um, find there the treasures that you have left for us, and may we go from this place rejoicing in you who are with us no matter where we are or where we go. In your name we pray, amen. All right, so we see here in Daniel 3 that the one true God is faithful to deliver his people. But what does his deliverance look like throughout Scripture? What does it look like today? Because after all, Daniel and his friends, they lived in the same fallen world that we live in. Uh, they were faced with cultural pressures to worship um, the idols of nation and self, and so do we. In many ways, the self has been raised up in our time um, to be the only God that is worthy of worship. Many of us, they, we live by the motto to be fulfilled in life, pursue the things you desire most. Don't let anyone stop you from doing what you want to do. Enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. Yet how empty have these beliefs less, left us as individuals and as a society? You know, there is a deeper longing that is still unmet, a longing to know and be known. And Jim Elliott, he was, a, he was a Christian missionary who lived by the opposite motto. Uh, he was a local of the Pacific Northwest, and he had a heart to share the gospel with the nations and an unequivocal commitment to the will of God. In 1995, after several years of serving of the native peoples of Ecuador, he, he felt God's call to preach the good news to the people, uh, to the Aka people, who were a remote people in the deep jungles of Ecuador. 
Now, the Aka had a reputation for violence, but Jim, he lived by the motto, no fool will give what he cannot gain, that's his life, or what he cannot keep, that's his life, to gain what he cannot lose, which is eternal salvation. His highest goal was not to live for himself, but for the glory of God. So after months of careful preparation, um, himself and four other men, they set up camp outside of an Aka village, hoping that the people would come make contact with them so that they could share the good news about Jesus with the people who had never heard his name. Now, four days later, they did make contact. There was a, a group of people, two women and one man from the village who came and they, they shared food with, with the missionaries and spent the afternoon with them. And it was a great time. But tragically, two days later, a group from the village came to the missionaries' camp and they killed everyone, Jim included. This tragic death of these missionaries, it leaves us with a haunting question. Does God really deliver his people? Daniel 3, it rings a resounding yes to this question. But it also reveals that God's deliverance doesn't always come by the means we might expect. And as we dive deeper into this text, we'll come across the defiance of the king, met by the defiance of God's people, which is ultimately leads to the deliverance of the true king. Now, following Christ in a hostile environment is not always easy, and it's not always safe. But Daniel's friends, they show us that the one true God is faithful to deliver his people. And the, the text, as you saw, begins with the defiance of King Babylon. Now, we see this in verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide, and he set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, if you remember from our sermon from last week, that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about this statue made of various metals, each representing a violent kingdom. Now, but that statue was destroyed when this rock that wasn't hewn by human hands came and crushed it and became a mountain that filled the whole earth. Now, isn't it interesting, after this disturbing dream, that Nebuchadnezzar builds a statue of gold? After all, the head of the statue in his dream represented uh, the kingdom of Babylon. It could be that Nebuchadnezzar was troubled by his dream, um, and he built this statue in an attempt to consolidate his empire, to, that the dream was threatening. Or perhaps he was filled with so much pride that the gold head represented himself and Babylon, that he wants to bring this dream to life. Either way, out of fear or hubris, we see here the king of Babylon exalting himself and his nation by exalting this image. Now, the statue, or in Aramaic, uh, Salem, meaning image, was an impressive size. But the text never uh, says what the image looked like. It could have been an image of Nebuchadnezzar himself, the Kings of Assyria made such statues as symbols of their dominion, or it could be that the image was of Nebuchadnezzar's gods. Now, what is clear is that the interests of God, king, and nation are closely interwoven, and they support each other. You can see this in verse 12, um, where the failure to bow before the statue is also considered um, a failure to pay attention to the king or to worship his gods. Nebuchadnezzar had clearly wrapped up his own honor and the good of his empire in exalting this image. And this might seem strange, but it's, it's not a new thing. People have been exalting the image throughout history, lifting themselves up as important and powerful and worthy of praise. Yet this misses a foundational truth um, in the Bible. 
You see this in Genesis chapter 1, where God created human beings in his image to rule over and take care of creation. God was so good and generous that he sought to share his authority with people made from the dirt, like you and me. Um, But there is no other need for images or idols because we are in God's image. Um, We are made as royalty to to share um, his authority in the world uh, and to rule on behalf of the true king of all creation. But as the story goes, the first humans, they rebelled against God and his ultimate claim of authority. They rejected their creatureliness and chose to instead make their own way in the world, setting themselves up as little gods instead of ruling on behalf of the one true God. And that humans have been doing the same thing ever since. But this does not negate the heart's need for worship. Though we are made in God's image, we are still creatures made to live in dependence on um, our creator. We were made to bow before and worship him only. When we rejected the creator and sought to exalt ourselves to the place that he alone belongs, it created a void, an emptiness that had to be filled by some means. Our worship had to go somewhere. G.K. Chesterton, he wrote that when man ceases to worship God, he does not uh, worship nothing, He worships everything. We can try and escape the implications of Daniel 3, thinking that idol worship was just a problem for the people of the ancient Near East. But the reality is everyone everywhere is worshiping something. And that something becomes our idols, the images we exalt to the place that God alone belongs. We don't get the choice of whether or not to worship. We just get the choice of what to worship. And oftentimes, the things we choose to worship aren't inherently bad things. They could be good things like work or marriage and family or even our moral virtue or ministry activities. The danger is when we we take these good things and make them into ultimate things. When we do that, these good things, they become the center of our identity, the source of our happiness, and they they start to direct every, every part of our lives. The scary thing is, when anything is worshipped other than God, it will only and always destroy you. It will start to destroy your life. Just think about it from uh, the Lord of the Rings. Think about Sauron. This great, mighty king, he, he poured all his malice into this little ring that augmented and exalted his power. But the ring he loved so much, it became the source of his weakness. All it took was two hobbits in a fiery volcano to destroy the source of Sauron's worship, and along with it, Sauron himself. Once the ring was destroyed, Sauron was destroyed. Now, this is a way of describing in narrative form what people are doing all the time. People are constantly placing their, their, their lives in external objects that are so fragile. You can see this in relationships, for example. It's a sad thing to be dating someone and to um, invest time and money into a relationship that ends in a breakup. But if you're devastated by that breakup, if you can't get past it, then it shows that you are exalting that relationship to the place that God alone belongs. Or what if you find your identity in work? If you make your career all important in your life, if you lose that all important job or your career goes off the rails, you lose yourself along with it. Nebuchadnezzar, he may have thought he was becoming more godlike by exalting this image, but it actually made him more vulnerable 
as his identity got wrapped up in something that could be so easily destroyed. Now, we do the same thing when we, we turn to the good things of creation, looking for what only the creator can give, identity, meaning, and purpose. You know, however, Nebuchadnezzar, he's not only seeking to exalt himself by exalting this image, he's also seeking to exalt the nation of Babylon. And in verses 2 through 7, we see that Nebuchadnezzar brings all the important people of the empire together to worship the image he exalted to bow the knee before Babylon and her gods. We see here an exalting of the nation, raising the empire up to the level reserved for the one true God. And this is, this is what happens um, when all sorts of, of, of culture, all, all people get together and start worshiping idols. Um, Timothy Keller, the former pastor of Redeemer Church, he says, when an individual makes and serves an idol, it creates psychological distortion and trouble. When a family, group, or country makes and serves an idol, it creates social and cultural trouble. So you may have thought that this fiery furnace story was just a kid's story told by the Veggie Tales, but, but the suffering of this passage, it, it, it encapsulates a, a, a sadness that has been played out over and over again. You know, individual idol worship, it leads to personal trouble, to relational trouble, but this cultural idol worship it creates societal trouble. All you do is have to look back a century before at Nazi Germany to see the suffering that exalting a nation can bring. This is no kid's story, right? When the interests of God and country are, are seen to be one and the same, the interests of the country, they're always elevated to, always elevated at the expense of those who are not in the in-group. Just listen to what the head of Hitler Youth declared in 1936 about Nazi Germany. He said, whoever serves Adolf Hitler, the Fuhrer, serves Germany. Whoever serves Germany serves God. Doesn't that just make your skin crawl? That's like so scary, right? But how often do we hear similar political rhetoric today? The idolization of the nation is alive and well. I took a trip to Russia back in 2019 with my former church to, to care for some long-term missionaries who lived in and around Moscow um, and we visited the Kremlin while we were there, and I, I was taken aback to learn that Stalin, the father of the Soviet Union, has his body on display in a mausoleum just outside of the Kremlin. And it was really eerie to watch this line of people waiting to get inside so they could see and venerate this body of a man who, who died almost, almost 100 years ago. I heard that they periodically replace his actual body parts with prosthetics to keep him looking fresh. They want this eternal image of, of, their, of their national power to remain forever. But this is, imagine what they would think of what, what people do to the free, his uh, statue in Fremont. Um, yeah, they probably wouldn't like that very much. Um, but this is just one example of the way that, that many continue to exalt national and ethnic identities to extreme and detrimental levels. We are not free from this idolization in America. Some data scientists have concluded from their research that we are more politically polarized than at any point since the Civil War. Certainly, social media has not helped to bridge the gap between those divisions, but we, we can't blame um, social media alone for the increase of contempt and derision that is thrown across the political divide between the right and the left. While in our own culture, we have sought to deconstruct uh, the idea of absolute truth, we can't live without it. We have to put our faith into something. 
And with God no longer in consideration, many have turned to politics to save them, which only fuels the rage and anxiety felt toward those who differ in their political opinions. When politics are imbued with religious significance, differences are turned into dangers. The other tribe must conform or be destroyed. Reinhold Niebuhr, he's a, a philosopher and theologian, he, he calls our tendency to privilege the interests of one group over another as the cosmic insecurity of our sinful hearts. We're, we're so insecure that we try to rally people around ourselves and to, who think like us so that we can feel more secure. And what this does is it causes us to see differences between culture or politics as more, in moralistic terms. We're the good guys and they're the bad guys who must be stopped. So just like individual worship of idols leads to disintegration of the self, the cultural and national worship of idols leads to societal disintegration as nations and tribal groups turn on one another in pursuit of power and security. As the only creatures made in God's image, we were meant to reflect his glory to all creation. To, but in exalting ourselves, our cultures, our nations, and so many other created things, we have brought sin and suffering into the world. The exalting of the image, whether for the individual or the community, only and always leads to the disintegration because we were made to worship God alone. He only is worthy of our praise. And we were not meant to spend ourselves on the passing things of this life. It's not wrong to, to desire safety or security, to know and be known, to give yourself for a worthy cause. But all these longings find their true source and fulfillment in the God of all creation. The heroes of our story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they stand firm in their commitment to worshiping the one true God. By doing so, they show us what it looks like to live as creatures under the Creator's care, to be human in an inhumane world. The defiance of the king is widespread and final, but it's met by a greater and stronger defiance, the defiance of God's people. The, the defiance of God's people, it shows up in verse 8. Interestingly enough, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are not immediately noticed by the king. They're not posting stories on Instagram or, or shouting their... their uh, their hate for the Nebuchadnezzar's rules on Twitter. No, they, they're actually pointed out and denounced by other members among the Chaldeans. As it says in verse 8, some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. Now, the Chaldeans were among several other ethnic groups who started the nation of Babylon. So the author of Daniel points them out as ethnic locals, which likely means that they were either upset with Nebuchadnezzar because he he raised Daniel and his friends up to the, the prestigious positions that they held, or there was some, some um, professional jealousy going on, and they, they coveted the positions of Daniel's friends for themselves, seeing their, their, this, their disobedience as an opportunity to get them out of the picture. Now, whatever their reasons, the Chaldeans revealed that exalting um, images, that worshiping idols, turns humans made into God's image into beasts. You see this in verse 8, that phrase maliciously accused can literally be translated, eat the pieces of, bringing to mind the disturbing image of eating flesh torn off of someone's body. In slandering the Jews, the Chaldeans become like beasts of prey. This is a theme that continually turns up throughout the book of Daniel, but also um, throughout the Old Testament. It's the theme of humans acting like beasts. 
becoming less than human. Now, God made us in his image to rule over the beasts of the world. But when we rebelled against God and sought to make ourselves into gods, it didn't make us greater. No, it caused us to become like violent beasts, to be ruled over by creation as we devour one another, as we are taken, taken by every whim and desire, instead of ruling over creation as we were made to do. Here we see the reversal of God's good and rightly ordered creation at play. Now, Nebuchadnezzar himself acts like a beast. He's overcome by his rage. He can't control it, so much so that he calls in these three friends and he puts them to the test. He, it's telling what he says in verse 15. Uh, he says, now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? You know, this reveals Nebuchadnezzar's inflated view of himself and how exalting this image was also exalting himself. He saw his power as greater than any other spiritual being. And he raised himself up to the place that only God belongs. But in verse 19, we see that Nebuchadnezzar is not even able to control his own emotions, much less the response of these three friends. Take a look at verse 19. It says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression of his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, that, that, that phrase, expression of his face, it's a strange one. But what the author of Daniel is doing is he's playing off of the word for image, which is here the direct translation of the word for face. Now, the king who exalted himself in the image he set up for all to worship refuses to... Um, now can't even control his own face, his own image, as he maliciously tries to devour these men who do not submit to him. But let's turn back to see what causes Nebuchadnezzar to become so enraged. Um, there's a lot of repetition in his story, which I'm sure you noticed, but um, part of that is to bring some humor into the story, but also to build suspense. And it builds and builds to come to a climax in verse 16 with the response of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Will they remain faithful to God, or will they submit to the false worship of nation and self? The, the announcers have spoken. Now comes the answer of the faithful. Okay, what do they say? They say, um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. What an amazing response of faith. Just like Daniel in chapter 1, who was determined to protect his purity under the cultural pressures of Babylon, Daniel's three friends are standing firm in their worship of the one true God. Now, from their response, it might seem like they are, they are calling into question God's, God's existence and also his power to deliver. But what they're really doing is phrasing the response, in, phrasing the response for sake of argument. Nebuchadnezzar had already called into question the God of Israel's power to save. But instead of an outright rebuke, these three friends, they come and they answer the king kindly but firmly. They will, not, they will not involve themselves in idol worship. 
They know and believe that God exists and can deliver them from the king's furnace. Yet they humbly do not presume that God will do so in this instance, which is the the addition of the if clause in verse 18. What a wondrous faith of these three friends. And personally, I find their obedience without conditions convicting because subconsciously, I tend to live with a sense of entitlement that because I follow God and try to obey him, that God owes me blessings, that he owes me protection and security. But this goes against the whole storyline of the Bible, which clearly reveals that, that we have all sinned against God and that there's nothing that we can do to make up for that sin. We've, we've turned to idols and we've tried to set ourselves up as our own gods. But God in Jesus has paid the price for our sins by taking our place on the cross. We did nothing to deserve creation. We didn't make ourselves, and we did nothing to deserve redemption. We haven't saved ourselves either. There's no way for us to put God in our debt. All of life is grace. Now, this this makes obedience then a response of joy and gratitude to God, the God who has given everything away to save us. Now, there should be no sense of entitlement. God owes me nothing. God owes you nothing. But we owe him everything. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they surrender themselves to the God of grace, the one they know is powerful enough to save, but they surrender without conditions. They will be obedient no matter what may come. Now, what is the consequence of their obedience? Nebuchadnezzar becomes enraged with an uncontrollable anger. He throws these three friends, fully clothed, bound by ropes, into the blazing furnace. The friends, they're, they're not delivered from the king's power. No, they, they are not, there's no miraculous intervention that keeps them from facing the blazing furnace. The blazing furnace of a world gone mad from false worship of nation and self. Now at this point, we may be asking that, that question again. Does God really deliver his people? He doesn't keep these three friends from facing the flames. But if you read on, you see that God does deliver in the midst of the flames. In the rest of the story, it shows the deliverance of the, of the true king. But his deliverance doesn't come in the way that we might expect. Now, the, we see in verses 24 through 26 the intervention of God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he's watching and waiting for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to be consumed by this fire. But instead, he sees something that he never expected. One Bible commentator, he notes, the king who thought that no God could save the confessors from his power is the one who now perceives God's intervention. The three have not been delivered from the fire, but they are delivered in the fire. You can see this in verse 25. Nebuchadnezzar, he exclaims, look, I see four men not tied walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, this phrase that he uses, son of the gods, it just means that Nebuchadnezzar recognized this fourth figure as some sort of spiritual being. He's not in the class of humans, but he's in the class of spiritual beings. Now, some commentators on this passage believe this was an angel that was sent to protect the three friends. Um, Others believe it's an example of the pre-incarnate Jesus who shows up at important moments throughout the biblical story before he shows up in the person of Jesus. Now, there's no clear indication who this figure is other than Nebuchadnezzar, who's not, not the most uh, trustworthy witness uh, on spiritual matters. But whether an angel or the pre-incarnate Jesus, uh, this fourth figure represents God's presence 
with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the midst of the fire. I love how the, the king, he says that the three friends, they're casually walking around with this, this fourth figure, like as if they're taking a stroll in the park. It brings, it brings uh, to mind what happened in, in the Garden of Eden where, where God walks with Adam and Eve in, in the cool of the day. God brings the peace of Eden into the most difficult moment of, the, of these three friends' lives. Meeting us in our pain is, is often how the one true God is faithful to deliver his people. And sometimes he does keep us from feeling the flames of persecution, hardship, death, and, and, and disappointments. But oftentimes he meets us in the midst of those trials and troubles, bringing peace, protection, and ultimate deliverance. You know, God, God he didn't protect Jim Elliot from the spears of the Akka. He and his four friends, they died trying to share the good news about Jesus. And Jim Elliot, he left behind a daughter and, and a wife. Was his obedience worth it? Many would say no, but, but not Jim's wife, Elizabeth Elliot. And she was devastated by the murder of her husband. But in her sorrows, the word of Isaiah 43 came to mind. We read that earlier, but I'll read it again for us. Um, now this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob... The one who formed you, Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And the rivers will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, and the fire will not burn you. Elizabeth, she recalled on meditating on this passage that she saw that God's promise does not come if you pass through the waters, but when he will be with you. Not if you walk through the fire, but when he will provide for you. The reality is we live in a broken world filled with, with people turned into monsters by the, the, the idols that they worship. Not only that, that, but we are broken as well because of the sin still dwelling within us. And, and our sin and, and rebellion against God has, has brought brokenness into the created world. There's sickness and suffering that, that come even outside of our, our mistakes and, and, and rebellion against God. And it, when the, all this brokenness hits our lives, it can cause a lot of problems, a lot of sorrow. Yet even when we are punished for doing what is right, God is still faithful to deliver. He makes no promises to keep us from feeling the flames, but he does promise to be with us in the fire. This reminds me of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German professor and theologian during World War II, uh, he was safe in America when the war finally broke out, but he felt God's call to go back to Germany and to help God's people there remain faithful amidst the Nazi regime. He wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship in which he wrote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer lived that truth. He returned to Germany and labored with faithful German Christians living under the empire of Nazi Germany. He was eventually arrested and hanged. But his memory and his words, they live on as a witness of the love and power of the God who saves, not by taking power, but by giving it away on the cross. And this same God calls us to take up our own cross, to put to death the idols that we try to protect and the dreams that we worship. After Jim's death, Elizabeth prayed to God, asking if God would have her do anything for the Aka people, not expecting any answers. But, but that's not what happened. God actually called her to minister to the Aka people 
And so two and a half years after Jim's murder, Elizabeth and her three-year-old daughter moved to a remote Aachen village, sharing the good news with the very people who killed her husband. Many became Christian because of her love and forgiveness, even some of those who were part of the attack on Jim and the other missionaries. Now, reflecting back on the work that God did through her after that terrible loss, Elizabeth said, Obedience is our task. The results of that obedience are God's and God's alone. Certainly, it was terrible that Jim and the, those other missionaries were murdered trying to share the good news about Jesus. But God even used this terrible darkness to bring the light of his kingdom to the Aka people. It was a terrible thing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were thrown into a fiery furnace. But God used their eventual deliverance to display his great power and love. This is what God does all throughout Scripture. This is what he does in my life, in your life. He takes all the broken pieces, the trouble and the pain, and he makes something beautiful. The church leader, Paul, he writes, We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. The all things includes those things we would rather not face. It includes the bad and the good. God, in God's abundant grace and love, he takes what was meant for evil and he turns it into good, both for us and for the world. Elizabeth Elliot, she summed it up well when she said, the will of God is always far different from what we imagine, far bigger, far more difficult, but unspeakably more glorious. And that's what we see in our passage. I'm, not, I'm sure Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would have preferred not to be thrown into a fiery furnace, but by God's intervention in the fire, rather than from the fire, we see God's power on display. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he looks to see these three friends. He, he sees them unaffected by the fire, and so he asks them to come out. He calls them servants of the Most High God. So it seems he hasn't forgotten everything that happened with Daniel in the previous chapter when Daniel understood Nebuchadnezzar's dream and told him the, uh, the interpretation so these three friends, no longer bound by the ropes, unaffected by the fire, they oblige the king and they walk out of the furnace. At this point, there are layers of reversals going on. You can see these reversals in verse 27. Um, when the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected and there was no smell of fire on them. Here we, see that, here we see the reversal. The important people of the empire, they're no longer gathered around the image that Nebuchadnezzar raised up and exalted. No, they're gathered around the faithful people of God. We see another reversal in, in, in that the fire did not affect them. The, the phrase, the fire had no effect, can be more literally translated, the fire had not had power over their bodies. Nebuchadnezzar thought that his powerful fire could not be matched. But God shows that there is nothing that comes close to his power. Nebuchadnezzar's image was distorted with uncontrollable rage as he acted more like an animal than a man, than a human. But Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're completely unchanged by the power of the fire. They show us what it looks like to be true humans, embracing their creatureliness and submission and dependence upon the Creator. What is the outcome of these men fulfilling the mandate given by God to be his agents in the world, to rule over and care for creation? It's not the praise of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their images are not raised up and worshipped. No, God is praised. 
This is what it means to live out our identity as creatures made in God's image, to reflect his glory in the world in such a way that God gets all the praise. We are to always be pointing away from ourselves and back to God, celebrating all of life as a gift from him, taking the good and the bad with joy, patience, and humility. We are not to exalt ourselves or bow before the fading things of this life, but to humbly follow God wherever he may lead. In this, God is praised. We see this in our passages. Nebuchadnezzar ends up praising the, the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The king may not have come to worship the God of Israel for who he is, the God of all creation, the one true God, but he does acknowledge that this God delivers his people. He allows the people of Israel to continue to worship God faithfully by making Judaism a protected faith in his empire, which is what his violent words are all about in, in verse 29. He may still be acting like an animal, but now God redirects that rage towards the protection of his people. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are unchanged by the fire, but their display of faith changes the edicts of the empire. They dare to be different, even at the cost of their lives, and because of that, God is praised. At the end of the passage, we see that these three friends are raised up and rewarded in, with places of honor. Nebuchadnezzar began the text by exalting himself, but it ends with God exalting Daniel's friends through the corrupt king. This is what happens when we don't try to overstep God, when we accept our place not as God's, but as God's image. God will exalt us. He will raise us up to join him in the work that he is doing to restore his broken world and bring his kingdom come and coming. Do you dare to be different? To image God at work or, or at school, among your neighbors and friends, even if they might think you're strange or out of touch with the real world? Would you stand up for what is right if your company was making decisions that had profits in mind over and above the flourishing of society, especially the poor and marginalized? These are difficult questions, but even if the wider world often belittles Christianity or looks down on our sexual ethics or outdated beliefs, I do believe that many are attracted to small acts of kindness and faithfulness displayed among Christian communities. The outrage when celebrity pastors become morally corrupt is, is evidence of the fact that the world that is often against us would much prefer that we act like the distinct people that we claim to be. Speaking of celebrity pastors and their public scandals, the secular uh, journalist Ben Sickmith wrote, they sh if they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, then there is nothing inspiring about them. Instead of making me want to become more like them, it looks very much as if they want to become more like me. Daniel, like Daniel's three friends, Jim and Elizabeth, Bonhoeffer, is your life, the life you're living, is it bringing praise to God? Are you using your distinct gifts and personality, what makes you, you, to image God, bringing his light in the darkness? Is there anything in you worthy of people stopping and saying, hey, I want more of that peace or that joy or that patience in my life? Do people want to be more like you or do you want to be more like the world? By dealing faithfully with the fiery furnace moments of our lives, we can be such wonderful examples to the world of, of the God who loves us and longs to restore all that is broken. Yet we can also glorify God in the small and mundane moments of the everyday. The pastor Eugene uh, Peterson 
uh, he wrote this once. He said, um, he calls this a long obedience in the same direction, this continual faithfulness. The fiery furnaces will come, and we should prepare for them so that we can be ready when they do. You know, perhaps you're dealing with one of these moments right now, and God is calling you to know his presence in the midst of the flames. But even if you aren't in one of these difficult moments, God is still with you in the mundane ups and downs of life. He's, he's calling you to be faithful in the small interruptions, the busy schedules, the overcrowded highways. Jim Kim, in his book, Analog Christian, he writes, in, in the age of insta-fame and clickbait headlines, celebrity pastors and their smoking hot wives, what truly stands out isn't more of the same, but rather this sort of faithful resistance to the fickle ways of the world, most often lived in quiet places, without adorning and applauding audiences. What a watching world needs from Christian, Christians isn't extraordinary flash. What it needs is ordinary faithfulness. And we can foster this ordinary faithfulness in our lives through the common spiritual practices of prayer, the reading of scripture, service to the poor, through gathering together for worship on Sundays and in small groups during the week. We can take these common spiritual practices and give them an edge, as Trevin Wax calls subversive spiritual practices, by intentionally and creatively pitting these practices against the idols that we are tempted to exalt. Do you find yourself obsessed with politics to the point that you demonize those with opposing views? Perhaps you can intentionally spend time each week praying for those on the opposing side. Do you have anxiety or fear around um, finances and future security? Perhaps you and your spouse could make a point to pray before you work on bills, reorienting yourself with the truth that God is the one in control and he is the one who provides. Do you grab your phone as soon as you wake up, getting, getting sucked into your little digital worlds? Well, perhaps you could make a habit of setting your phone outside of your room and, and beginning with reading of Scripture, with what God says about you and the world in which you live. Now, these are only a few examples. You know, consider your own rhythms and the idols that, that pull at the affections of your heart. You know, how might the, do you practice these spiritual disciplines in a way that they begin to undermine and subvert the seductive ways of the world in which we live. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, there's their amazing faith. It didn't come from nowhere. It was the fruit of a long life full of small acts of obedience and extended meditation on God's word. You know, we can be encouraged and inspired by studying the lives of faithful men and women like these three friends or Elizabeth Elliot. But in the end, the deliverance of the true king did not come because of their faithfulness. The deliverance was an act of grace. Daniel's friends' faithfulness didn't rest on their own strength or their own abilities or their own, or their own patience or whatever it may be. No, it ultimately rested on the faithfulness of God. They had a sure hope that even if God didn't save them from death in the furnace, he would bring mercy and justice somehow and in some way. No, we actually have a leg up on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego because we see Jesus, who is the true image of God, on display. He's not a mere reflection. No, he is God in the flesh, come to save his wayward world. Paul writes about Jesus in Colossians. He says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by him 
in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created for him or through him and for him. He is before all things and by him all things hold together. And how did Jesus, the true and rightful king over all creation, the only perfect image of God, act out his rule and reign in the world? Well, Paul goes on to tell us, he says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus entered this broken world filled with the violence of wayward worship and lived the perfect life in our place, imaging God as, as we were meant to, but no one else could, everyone else failed to do. And what was his reward? He died in our place on the cross. He took upon himself the, the fire of God's just judgment of our sin and the sins of this world. He was there in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and he was there on the cross, taking upon himself the violence of a world that exalts everything and everyone but the one true God. He took it all because he so loves us and longs to share with us the love that he has had with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity, this perfect communion of love. Now, the one true God is faithful to deliver his people. He has delivered us from sin, from death and the devil through Jesus Christ, the true king. It's only as we turn to Jesus and rest in his finished work that we can truly walk in faithfulness in the midst of the trials and troubles, but also in the, the mundane interruptions and distractions and little temptations of the everyday. We don't have to fear even death itself because he has conquered death on the cross. Now, Jesus, he's not just our example. He's our Lord and our Savior. He was, ex he was exalted in his resurrection and ascended to the Father's side where he rules and reigns even now, whether or not the nations of the world acknowledge him, whether or not the crumbling kingdoms of this life pay him any attention. Now, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, be encouraged that he does not only ask you to come and die to your desires and your dreams, he has died for you. And in every step, you take in this confusing and frustrating world of Babylon, he is with you. And he will bring you ultimately and finally home, not because you do everything right, but because of his amazing grace in his death and resurrection. It's not the strength of your faith that matters. It's the strength of the one you put your faith in. You can think about it like stepping onto an airplane. Even if you're scared out of your wits that that plane is going to crash, it's it's not going to change the outcome. You're still going to get where you're going. You're not the one driving the airplane. Um, and it's the same with Jesus. No matter how scared or anxious you may be at times, he is strong enough and good enough and loving enough to take you through your exile to your true home where all is made new. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I would ask you to consider what it might look like to take that first step onto the plane. What might it look like to take that next step towards Jesus. You know, you might have plenty of questions about this or that theology. You might have plenty of questions about the ethics of Christianity. You might have plenty of doubts. Well, so do I. God, he is big enough to hold our doubts. It just takes a little step of faith to move towards Jesus.